0: Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. My friends, we are in Matthew chapter 16. So please turn there in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. Let's pray before we begin. Father, we ask now that you would uh, speak to our hearts. Lord, we do indeed. Thank you for your word. And there's nothing quite like uh, coming under it just confident expecting that you'll speak to our hearts um lord that your words are true and so father we ask that you would prepare our hearts now to receive we know often that that's what can sort of block things as uh we've maybe we're dealing with some other stuff thinking about some other stuff um wrestling maybe with an area of sin in our lives um we come with preconceived set ideas that we're unwilling to let go of lord all those things hinder perhaps what you want to do so we're asking now that even just in this this second right now, Lord, that we'll lay those things aside so that we can come and hear from you. We present ourselves to you, open up your word to our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said, we're going to do Matthew 16. Matthew 16 is a relatively short chapter. There's only 28 verses in the chapter. Um, However, that being said, as confident as I was that we were going to finish this chapter today, we're not going to make our way all the way through the chapter. We're only going to look at the first 12 verses, so we'll probably finish it up the next time we're together so you can read ahead through the book of Matthew. But if you take notice, notice how Matthew 16 begins. It says this in verse 1, that the Pharisees and the Sadducees came and to test him, that's Jesus, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. The Pharisees and the Sadducees. If you've been around the Bible, they're, they're terms you're probably familiar with. You've heard of them before. They pop up in the Gospels in the New Testament uh, again and again. And we'll talk a little bit about them today. But the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were really the traditional opponents of one another in that first century. And so when you thought of one and said, what's the opposite of a Pharisee? You would have said a Sadducee. They were on different ends of the religious spectrum, and yet interesting, they're united by their animosity toward the Lord, and they come together in opposition to Him. And we've been spending some time, they're both religious leaders, we've been spending time looking at the fact that more and more and more, people that are opposed to Jesus, religious leaders that are opposed to Jesus, were coming to Him, challenging Him, confronting Him, sometimes even threatening Him. And so you may recall that it was when we hit Matthew chapter 9 that there was sort of a turn. Prior to that time, the religious leaders, they were content to sort of let Jesus do his thing as long as he stays within his place. But that all begins to change in Matthew chapter 9. Let me remind you of some of those changes. It was in chapter 9 verse 3 where the religious leaders first accused Jesus of committing blasphemy. You may recall that's where Jesus... Uh, forgave a person or pronounced forgiveness to a person for his sins and they said that's blasphemy you can't do that it was in verse 11 of chapter 9 where Jesus was criticized for the fact that he would eat with tax collectors and sinners they likened that to him being a a sinner himself that he would eat with them it was in verse 34 of that chapter after Jesus had cast a demon out of a person that they declared publicly that the only way that he had the power to do that was by Satan himself, that Satan empowered him to cast out Satan. It was in chapter 12 that he and his disciples were charged with being Sabbath breakers. These are significant charges. They may not mean much to you, but they meant a lot to those people in those days. And so they were, he was charged with being a Sabbath breaker. Last week in chapter 15, or two weeks ago in verse 1 of chapter 15, they accused him of breaking the traditions of the elders, the law and the elders. And then perhaps the most significant opposition or it crescendos, if you will, was in Matthew chapter 12 when they actually began to plot how they might destroy or kill Jesus. And so the religious leaders are coming against Jesus again and again, and now they come to test him. Notice there in verse 1, it says, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they came and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. In my version, the ESV says they asked him. If you read the NIV, it says something like that, asking of him. Or the New King James Version. A lot of our versions say ask. But the term could actually be translated, they come demanding of Jesus. And so I think in this instance, the New Living Translation gets it right. Because there we read this. One day the Pharisees and Sadducees came to test Jesus, demanding that he show them a miraculous sign from heaven to prove his authority so this isn't a friendly interaction between two different people groups and it's not a sincere interaction of somebody sincerely seeking to know but rather it's some people it's a confrontation with two openly hostile groups coming to Jesus and demanding him to do what they tell him he has to do now some background there was this idea this philosophy that was going around in that day that even if a miracle was done that had to do with sort of earthly things like for instance healing somebody that comes up to you on the earth is sick or feeding five thousand turning food that's earthly stuff or whatever well even a demon could empower a person to do that That was the thinking and so the idea was jesus show us a sign from the heavens and that'll prove that you really are from the heavens and not just someone empowered by uh, demons or the devil and so they're demanding of jesus this sign to prove who he was. Notice also in the verse there, it says, and this was to test him. Again, this isn't some sincere people really trying to learn and understand, but they want to put him to the test to prove him wrong. And then they can tell everybody, see, he's not who he says he is. Well, let's read the the full account. It's from verses 1 through 4. It says, Now the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test Jesus they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it's evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. And so he left them, and he departed. Give us a sign. Prove to us that you are the Messiah from heaven. Jesus says, No. No, I'm not going to give you a sign, or at least not at this moment. I'm not going to give you a sign. I'm not going to perform a magic trick for you to convince you of who I am. Now, I read that and I think, Jesus, you should have. You should have given them some remarkable magic trick or whatever and just shut everybody up once and for all. But Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't blow their mind with some amazing miracle that will settle the record. And of course, we would ask, why not? Well, let me ask you, what side would you suggest that Jesus do? Should he get off the boat there and go walk on the water? Should he do that and walk on the water? Well, we know he already did that. Should he feed some five or 10,000 people? Oh, that's right. He did that too in both chapter 14 and 15. Or well, maybe he could set some people free of demon possession or heal some people that had never been able to get healing anywhere else. And we know that he did that in chapters 4, 8, and 14. Or maybe he could raise somebody from the dead. Maybe that could be a sign to prove who he was. And we know that he did that back in chapter 9. And he did all of these signs, pretty amazing signs, and still the people didn't believe. The point is this. They come demanding of him a sign, but scores of signs had already been given and on display for them. So miraculous signs don't convert. They can play a part in sort of confirming the work that God is already doing, but they, they in and of themselves can't convert. And we see numbers of examples in the Old Testament of unbelievers that were impressed by signs, but their heart wasn't changed by the sign. Think of Pharaoh, for instance, when Moses would come to him. And again and again, there are those signs that, of, uh, that Moses, God working through Moses displays. And he's intrigued, he's impressed, but he's not converted. And so the problem... For these religious leaders that are coming to Jesus, isn't that there has been an absence of sign, but rather their unwillingness to believe the signs that have already been on display. And Jesus calls them out for it. Look again in verse 2. He gives them an example. He says, when, when it's evening, you say it's going to be fair weather because the sky is red, beautiful sunset. In the morning, it's going to be a stormy day because the sky is red and it's threatening. He says, you know how to interpret the sky but you cannot interpret the signs of the time. He uses an example that all of them would be familiar with. He used an example that we would be familiar with. Today we say it a little differently. Red sky at night, sailors delight. Red sky in the morning, sailors take warning or whatever. We, we have these little things there. We look at the clouds. I was at the beach a couple of weeks ago, and it was a beautiful day. And then all of a sudden, I looked back toward the land. It was like 5, 6 o'clock at night or whatever. And a storm was coming. And it was a si- significant storm that was going to come. There was a lot of flooding that took place down the beach, which is no big deal. It always floods uh, on LBI. But nonetheless, we could look at the sky. We could see the clouds. And I remember saying, hey, it's going to rain. See ya, honey. <laughs> you know what I mean? she's like, no, oh, it's lovely. And I'm like, well, I'm leaving. And I took everything I could possibly carry. And she yelled at me later for not waiting for her. I said, you're healthy. You're healthy. You can get there. I said, we got to get home. It's going to rain. But you read the signs there. You read the sky, and you know how. But notice he says, you know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. You can read the weather patterns, but not the sign of the times that we are in. And honestly, if somebody were to get in a boat when it's clear that a storm is going to happen, we would all look at that person and be like, what's the matter with you? You're a knucklehead. You look at you know a storm's going to come. I remember during Sandy, people were like, "Hey, this would be great surfing weather. Hurricane Sandy, whatever. And people were going to the beach instead of fleeing the beach. And finally, the governor, remember, he cursed at everybody. Get off the beach, he says, in his colorful language there. And he eventually made a statement. You may recall, he said, "Look, anybody that doesn't leave their home, evacuating their home, we can't guarantee that we can come to get you when the storm hits you." We're going to have other things to deal with then. We'll try to. We're not going to abandon you or whatever. But leave now, he kept saying. Read the clouds, see the signs, and and pay attention uh, and respond to them. But they weren't doing that. They were foolishly missing the signs of Jesus' coming and he calls them out for it. And then he says in verse 4, he says, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to this generation except the sign of Jonah. And he left them and he departed so plenty of signs had already been given and he says it's an evil and adulterous generation that demands an additional sign now jesus does say he will provide them with a sign it just won't be the sign that they want or on their time frame and so he says the sign that i'm going to give you will be a sign of my choosing and he says in verse four there no sign will be given to it except the sign of jonah the sign of jonah uh, perhaps you're not familiar with the sign of Jonah, and so I will remind you. There's a, an account of the life of a prophet in the Old Testament. It's, a, it's written in a book. It's a short book. It's about four chapters in the Old Testament. And the name of the book bears the name of the prophet. So the book is called the Book of Jonah. And Jonah was a Jewish prophet. He lived during the reign, we know, of King Jeroboam II. So historically, we can narrow down the time frame pretty good to right around 775 B.C., and that's about 50 years before the enemy nation or the empire to the north, a nation or an empire called the Assyrians, that's about 50 years before they would come in and overrun the land of Israel. And so Jonah was a prophet in the years leading up to, or the generation leading up to, the Assyrian captivity. And despite the fact that Jonah was a Jewish prophet, God called him to go to the nation of Assyria, particularly to the city of Nineveh, and speak to that foreign people, and pronounce on them a coming judgment on them, lest they repent. Now Jonah, it says in chapter 1, verse 2, the scripture says, Go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Jonah knew that the people of Nineveh were a particularly wicked group of people. Now, all people are sinners and so on, but these people took it to another level. And they were terribly violent. And as they would go around and conquer, if you will, the known world at that time, they instilled fear into people with how brutal they were as well. And so there are accounts of entire cities of people where the army of that city would essentially just come out when the Assyrians came and met them and said, look, we don't even want to fight at all. You can have it all. Do with us whatever you will, because they knew that if they did turn to fight them, it would become very brutal uh, and it would be pretty terrible. They would chop off the heads of all of the men of a city and they would pile up their heads at the gate of the city. Eventually they'd become just skulls there to send a message. No one was allowed to move them either. And they would send a message to anyone in the future that you come against us, this is what's gonna happen to you. They would impale people alive uh, on stakes and things like that. They would put big hooks in people's jaws and drag them as slaves off to another place where they would go. They were very, very brutal and cruel. And so Joseph, or excuse me, Jonah knows all this about these people. And in Jonah's mind, God, you want me to go, tell them that judgment is coming, and I know how you work, God. They're gonna repent. They're going to say they're sorry, and you're going to forgive them, and I'm not interested in playing that game. And so it tells us in Jonah chapter 1 that Jonah, instead of getting on a ship or getting on a bus or whatever and driving to Nineveh, he gets on a ship and he goes to the other side of the world. Instead of going to Nineveh, he goes to this place called Tarshish, which was kind of the furthest distance in the known world at that time. It would be as if God called you to go to New York City and you got on a plane and you went out to California instead because you're not interested in doing what God has asked you to do, so you're going to go as far away as possible. Now it tells us this in Jonah chapter 4. This is the reason why Jonah didn't want to go. In Jonah chapter 4, after the people of Nineveh had repented, it says, but this displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and he said, is this not what I said would happen when I was back in my country? This is why, I have a spelling error there, this is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. It displeased Jonah. That could actually be translated that it was exceedingly evil to Jonah. And what was it that was exceedingly evil to Jonah? It was this, that God would forgive the people of Nineveh. Jonah was mad at God here. Jonah didn't feel like these people in Nineveh had the right to be forgiven. And he was angry that God would forgive them, that God did forgive them. And so he tried to avoid it altogether. Jonah thought that God's forgiveness of these people was wrong. Now you might hear that and you're like, that's terrible. What kind of a prophet would do such a thing? But there are a lot of people, a lot of us, that look at certain people and the wickedness of their sin and think they don't deserve forgiveness. I remember a story about Jeffrey Dahmer. You guys remember Jeffrey Dahmer? He was in the 90s or something like that. And Jeffrey Dahmer was a serial killer that, I mean, and that's bad enough, but went over, he chopped people up and ate their bodies. It was horrible, crazy guy. And he went into prison and all of this, and apparently while he was in prison, a minister began to speak into his life, and he was converted. And people were like, wow, Jeffrey Dahmer got saved, and they were using that as an example. God can save anybody. And there were a lot of people, Christians, quote-unquote, a lot of people that were angry and frustrated and bothered by the idea, you're telling me a guy like that can go to heaven just because he says he's sorry, and I've never done a thing wrong in my life, and I'm a good person, and I can't go to heaven? You, You see what I'm saying? And so there was sort of this anger at God's mercy, and that's what Jonah is here. So Jonah knew exactly what God was going to do, and he said, I'm not going to be a part of it. He went elsewhere. Now, that's chapter, if you will, chapter 1, really just the first five or six verses of 1, and chapter 4. The middle part of the book of Jonah is what Jesus is referring to. And so we'll call it chapters 2 and 3, and that tells us how Jonah got from heading off to Tarshish, back to Nineveh to preach the gospel. And it tells us there in the beginning of chapter 1, verse 4, that Jonah gets on a ship, that's heading off to this town that's called Tarsus, and in verse four it says, "But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up." The passage goes on to tell us that the storm was so severe that the, these professional sailors that they even became afraid, and they begin to call out to their various gods for safety verse 5 tells us that that the mariners were afraid it could be translated they were terrified and each cried out to his god these are professional men of the sea that were led by their captain uh who was trying to do everything they could to protect them and they become freaked out the text doesn't say but i assume they tried to sail away from the storm i assume they trimmed the Hatches or whatever, I don't know, the sails and batted up the hatches or all the terms that you hear. They tried to do everything they could and nothing was helping. And they finally get to that point where they say, you know what, we need to lighten the ship. So they throw all the cargo off the ship. Now remember, these guys are shipping cargo to make money. And so they throw it all off of the ship. They basically said, look, our life is better than the profit we can make here. We got to do whatever we can do. They even go to the extreme in their case of praying. Pray to any God that you pray to. Hopefully one of them will answer and we'll be able to get out of here. And I think, I I think we know, the only one not praying is Jonah. We actually learn that Jonah is sleeping, much to the surprise of the captain and the others, and they say to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? We quote that Bible verse often as our kids are getting ready for school. What do you mean, you sleeper? Get up, arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us, that we may not perish. now we don't know for sure, but I'm pretty sure that Jonah doesn't pray for rescue because Jonah would just as happy be dead than have to go to Nineveh and tell them about God's coming judgment, risking the fact that they might repent. Well, eventually the captain, the crew, they kind of go through this whole process the storm doesn't stop they decide to cast lots draw straws we might say in our day to find out why is this storm coming against us who among us is at fault for this particular storm they cast lots they draw straws and the straw comes to Jonah that he is the reason for this great storm for the peril that they have now at sea and they say to one another as we see there in verse 7 come on let's do it it falls on Jonah the jig is up The full story comes out. He fesses up. He says, look, I'm a prophet of God. I'm not a very good prophet of God, but nonetheless, I'm a prophet of God, and this storm is all my fault, and then he offers him a solution. Look, I brought all this on us. Toss me off the ship. You guys will be fine. Now, the captain's like, we're not tossing anybody off the ship. All right, we don't do that here, but the storm persists a little bit while longer, and he says, hey, Jonah, come on over here, buddy, and he says, take a look over there, Ah." and he throws him off of the ship. And so Jonah gets thrown off of the ship. Notice in verse 15, it says the sea ceased from raging. Now the account doesn't end there because as far as we can assume, the, the merchants, they sail away, but they're in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, Jonah is just sort of bobbing up and down, floating up and down. And you would think eventually he would get tired and he would die, but the scripture says this in verse 17, that the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of that fish three days and three nights. Now some people hear that and they say, Come on. You don't really believe that, do you? A great fish swallowed up a man and that the man survived for three days and three nights in the belly of that fish. Well, actually I do believe it. And I'm not the only one who believes it, and I think I'm on with on good grounds here. Jesus himself believed it. So you can either disagree with the Lord, you can disagree with me, I don't care, but you can disagree with the Lord. Earlier, when Jesus encountered some other Pharisees and religious leaders, Jesus said something very similar to what he says in our passage today, but he adds these words. He says, these, these are the similar words. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now notice, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. You see, Jesus seemed pretty convinced that Jonah literally experienced this. And either Jesus was too gullible to know that this was just a story or the so-called smart folks of our day that poo-poo this as a children's story. Maybe they're just too smart for their own good. The truth is that Jonah was swallowed up by a great fish after being thrown into the sea that day. The truth is that Jonah spent three days and three nights thinking about things as he sat there. And that's good for us, isn't it? to have some time just to think about some things. He did. And the truth is that Jonah, who was as good as dead, as he sat there in the belly of that great fish, waiting to actually die, was in a sense raised back to life when it tells us in verse 10 of chapter 2 that the fish came and vomited him out. That's disgusting. But vomited him out. Can you imagine him walking up onto the shores of Nineveh? Uh, And he does. And it says, The Lord spoke to the fish it vomited Jonah on the dry dry land in a sense he was raised back to life because he was as good as dead as he sat there in that fish and that's what jesus points to as the sign that he will give to these religious leaders so again in verse 4 of matthew 16 he says no sign will be given except the sign of jonah jesus points to one sign that will serve as evidence of who he is he doesn't point to the fact that he would feed 4,000 people or 5,000 people. He doesn't point to the sign of the healing of people that had sicknesses and nobody else could heal. He doesn't point to the fact that people are being raised from the dead or being delivered from demons. But he says, the conclusive proof of who I am will be my resurrection from the dead. And so is it any wonder that in our day so many opponents of the gospel of Jesus Christ set their aim at that historical event, the historical event of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? That's the conclusive sign, Jesus said, to look to. And yet the evidence is clear. Three days following the betrayal, the arrest, and the crucifixion of Christ, the stone was rolled away from the tomb that they had laid him an angel sat there, stood there triumphantly declaring that he is not here, he is risen. So Jesus, they asked Jesus a sign. He says, I'll give you a sign, my resurrection from the dead. And so here we are, 10 chapters later, Matthew chapter 28, he rises from the dead, and everybody believed, right? Unfortunately, that's not what happened. Read these verses with me. You read quietly. It says in verse 11, While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priest all that had taken place. And everyone remembered what Jesus had said and recognized that it was the sign he promised, and they believed and lived happily ever after. Is that how your version reads it? No, it says this. After the chief priests were told by the guards what had happened, It says, and that while they had assembled the elders and taken counsel, the elders gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears that you were sleeping on the job, we will satisfy him and keep you guys out of trouble. And so the guards took the money and they did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Give us a sign to prove who you are. Okay, my resurrection from the dead. Hey, Jesus resurrected from the dead. We don't believe it. We refuse to believe it. Instead, we'll come up with a lie and we'll bribe these men to tell that lie if they were ever asked. And so we, we have these Pharisees and Sadducees coming and demanding of Jesus' sign, but they're not coming sincerely to Jesus. They're not coming to really discover if he was indeed the, the Messiah of Israel, but they're coming to test him and ultimately to d- disprove him, and Jesus has no interest in playing that game, and meeting their demands and putting on a show for them. And so, look at verse four. He it says, and so he takes leave of them. He he left them, and he departed. Does Jesus ever confirm with signs? Sure, he can absolutely. But he's not going to come and confirm us with a sign for some hard-hearted person who probably isn't going to believe anyway. And so, you know, the professor, oh, you believe in God? Yeah, sure do. You believe God is real? Yes. Yeah. You believe we do anything? Yes. All right, well, take this egg and come up here to the front of the classroom. I am going to drop this egg. And if your God is real, he'll prevent that egg from breaking when it hits the ground. God will prove himself in a sign. Well, what do you think's going to happen when that egg falls? It's going to break. See, there, there's no God, is there? There's no God, is there? God's not interested in playing your little game. How about I throw the egg at you and see if it breaks? You know, let's play that little game or whatever. That's just my bad attitude. I'm sorry. I just have a bad attitude. But God's not interested in that. But there are times where God may show up to the sincere person and confirm in a sign. I I heard the story of a, a person, a Chinese person. His name was Lo. And somebody had been evangelizing to him, witnessing to him. And this young man, he just could not wrap his mind around this idea that God would be with him and that God would love him and care for him and all those kinds of things. And so kind of at the end of himself, the, the evangelist, and the missionary said, look, Lo, when you go home, read the Bible that I gave you, open it up, read it, pick anywhere you want and read it. But before you do, just say, God, speak to me and just confirm to me that you're really here. And so the guy picks up his Bible, he goes home and he opens it up, he prays that little prayer and he reads it and he comes across that verse which means something entirely different to you and I, but he comes across that verse which says, Lo, I am with you always, <laughs> even to the end of the age. And you know what? It sounds silly, but it probably meant everything to that guy. You know. And God can, God can do it, certainly so. He doesn't typically, but he can do so for the guy that's sincerely seeking, as our friend Lo was. Now, the story continues. Our account continues. Let's pick up in verse 5. It says, Now... When the disciples reached the other side of the Sea of Galilee, they had forgotten to bring any bread. We should add, again. And Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And so they began discussing this amongst themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this conversation, said, O oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing <coughs> excuse me, among yourselves the, facts, the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive yet? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, he says again. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees, and the Sadducees, and so they are now away from the religious leaders, they had that uh, confrontation, they get in the ship, and they're going to make it to the other side of the river, and Jesus sees this as a teachable moment, this is a great opportunity for me to teach these disciples, remember that's the purpose of being a disciple, particularly in that time, the idea was you go with the teacher, and just live life with them, and when opportunities present themselves, he can teach you. And so here's one of those particular opportunities, and he starts with a strong statement. He says, watch and beware. Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, verse 5 also tells us that this conversation is when they get to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And so that causes my mind to kind of play out a little bit and try to picture the scenario. And I, I think the scenario went something like this. They had just had this encounter with the religious leaders, It didn't really end well. Jesus makes a strong statement like, no, I'm not giving you a sign. Come on, guys, let's go. They get in the ship. And I suspect that they get into that boat and there's sort of a little bit of quiet here. Nobody really wants to say anything. You know, is Jesus all right? Is he mad? Is he upset? You know, should we get involved? Should we talk about it here? And so everyone's just waiting for the ice to kind of break and that there's a tension in the air. And it seems as if the interaction sticks with Jesus. Jesus that he's not really talking about the weather or any other kinds of things, but it's just kind of sticking there and going on in his mind. So finally, when he gets to the other side of the shore, maybe they get out of the boat, maybe they don't, but he turns to the guys and he says, Guys, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, we come to discover this. The disciples will come to discover this. What he's really talking about is the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But as we saw here, the disciples jump to the conclusion that he's talking about the fact that they brought no bread. So verse 7 says they begin discussing that amongst themselves. Notice verse 8 it's, it says there, but Jesus aware of this. Jesus is aware of the fact that they're discussing this amongst themselves. So he just makes this statement that's hopefully going to go into this great teaching and interaction Socratic method interaction or whatever and instead they're whispering like, oh crap sorry, we forgot, we forgot to bring food here, we're going to get in a lot of trouble or whatever. And so Jesus hears this. I was telling the first group, it reminded me when I was working a job at a bank one time, and it was a brand new bank. We had been in this little storefront for a long time, brand new building. We've been waiting for months for this building to be finished, and it's the first day. And the way this particular bank was, all the tellers were over here, and back over there kind of behind a wall was where the manager sat. And so all of us tellers are over here, and one of my partners there, one of the ladies next to me, she says, hey, can you toss me the out?" or whatever, and I, or hand me, I think she said, because she was an adult, I was like a college kid, I heard toss, or whatever, and so she's like ready like this to catch it, and I said, no, nah, that's not the way you, you toss it, I said, you gotta do it like you're turning a double play, or whatever, and she's like, what, or whatever, so I, I took it, and I threw it on a rope right over to her, this thing, and she went like this, and she missed it, and it hit the nice mahogany wall, and it burst against the wall, and all of the whiteout went down the wall and onto the brand new carpet, now, my friend, who's like a 40-year-old lady, is not used to breaking things at home and having to hide it from mom. I was pretty good at that. And so she squeals, ah, or whatever, and I was like, shut up. I said, we, we can get away with this, and, and here's what we're going to do. And so anyway, we, we start cleaning the wall, and she's making all kinds of noise, and we're making all kinds of noises, and doors are shutting as we're trying to find cleaning supplies. But my manager was kind enough. I know she heard everything. She was kind enough to hide over there behind the wall and give us time to right our wrong, so to speak. And we did pretty good in righting her wrong. And so I'm reminded of her kindness to just let us go about our business and try and clean this mess up to Jesus, just sort of sitting there and letting the disciples discuss this. And then finally, maybe it has no connection whatsoever, but it's what I think of. Finally, it says he is aware of this. Jesus is aware of this discussion And he calls them out on it. He says, I'm not talking about bread. He says, when I say the leaven of these religious leaders, I'm not talking about bread. It seems as if he's somewhat flabbergasted. It says there, I guess it's verse 9, he says, don't you proceed, don't you remember when we fed 5,000 people with five loaves of bread, we fed 4,000 people with seven loaves there and some fish. Don't you remember when we did these things? Obviously, I'm not talking about bread, I'm talking about the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. That's the leaven that I'm referring to. I'm talking about the event that happened 20 minutes ago, guys. And they're like, oh, sorry, we didn't understand. But now we do. I'm sure they did. Verse 12, it says, Then they understood that he wasn't talking about the leaven of bread, but of the teaching. Now, I believe these instructions are important for us as well. So when Jesus says to them, he throws that statement out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees, I think it's important for us as well. What's interesting is the Pharisees over here on the right, the Sadducees over here on the left, those groups don't continue to exist to this day. I'm sure none of you have ever met a Pharisee or a Sadducee, a real live one. You may meet people that you call a Pharisee or something, but a real live Pharisee, those religious sects uh, don't continue to this particular day. But the tendencies of those religious groups does continue. And that's what I think it would be well wise for us to be on our guard against as well. Jesus says, beware of the tendencies to us of the, Pharisee, the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, the Bible says a lot about leaven throughout its pages. Sometimes it's literally referring to leaven when you look in the Old Testament law and the type of food and, and so on. But more, more often than not, it's using the term in a uh, figurative sense. And so even this term leaven, we don't really use leaven in our common dialogue, but if I were to say yeast, we, we understand this idea of yeast. Think of the, what yeast can do if you were to have a loaf of bread and compare that with a cracker or, or the, the crackers that we use for like communion or whatever, that's what yeast can do. And so it has the ability, it's a substance that is added to dough to make the dough ferment and to make the dough rise. And so that's this idea of leaven. And oftentimes it's used in a figurative sense in the Bible. Galatians chapter 5, Paul says this, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. It's like a tongue twister. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. The lump there would be the dough, and it only takes a little leaven to permeate that whole lump. And that's a picture that Paul and his readers, that Jesus and his listeners would have been familiar with. And so Jesus uses it to make a spiritual point in saying, if you will, a little leaven leavens the whole lump, that it doesn't take much. And so it's the wise disciple that will beware of the leaven of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So let's look at them. The Pharisees, they were the religious sect of the first century, even earlier before that. It's believed it goes all the way back to Ezra, Uh, in those years, but they were the religious sect of the first century that would be characterized as being the ultra-legalist. The Pharisee was the one that was focused on the most minute details of both the law and the traditions of the elders, and they made sure that you kept the minute details as well. I think their philosophy was something, if I'm going to be miserable, you're going to be miserable, and so we're all going to do this. Now, we can look at them, and certainly we can commend them for their zeal and for their dedication. But sadly, while their outward behavior strictly adhered to the rules, we know about the Pharisees, particularly those in the Gospels, that the Pharisees, that their hearts were very far from God. In fact, there's a a like passage to this account in Luke, which tells us, in addition to Jesus saying, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, that he added the words, He defines what that is he says which is hypocrisy and so the the pharisees were the ultra legalist and they were the hypocrite concerned with what their outward looked like but not concerned at all with what the heart was where the heart was now the sadducees are on the other end of the spectrum so if the pharisees are all the way over here on the right the sadducees are all the way over here on the left and we might call them the ultra liberal the skeptic the sadducees were The Sadducees were the ones that mocked a literal understanding of the Scripture. The Sadducees rejected the idea of the existence of angels and spirits or the resurrection from the dead. They rejected the idea of heaven and hell. The Sadducees were concerned with the here and the now. The message of the Sadducees, religious people, was be a good person. Be kind to your neighbor. Put a little love in your heart. Remember that song? Put a little love in your heart. Doug, come sing it for us. Never mind, Doug. They were concerned with sort of the here and now. Now, those attributes, just like the Pharisees, they're commendable. I'm glad they wanted to be good people. I'm glad they wanted to be kind to their neighbor. But when those things became the focus of their faith and their ministry, they very quickly drifted away from the things that were eternal. And so like the one who gained the whole world and lost their soul, well, these guys, if you will, saved the whole world and lost their souls. If we had to make comparisons to our day, we might compare the Pharisee to sort of that traditional view of the staunch Baptist or something that is out there. And we might compare the Sadducee to sort of the direction that a lot of mainline Protestant denominations have gone, and we kind of have that there. But I think there's a danger in making comparisons to contemporary groups around us. I think the danger is we could say, yeah, those people, and yeah, those people. And I think Jesus would have us look at ourselves. And so as we kind of pull back and we look at ourselves and search out our own heart, I think what we do is we discover that there are these tendencies that make their way into our lives and into our thinking as well. And so we would do very well to take careful inventory from time to time To see if we have been influenced by either of these two movements, both individually but also as a church. Have we become influenced by the ways of the Sadducees or the ways of the Pharisees? So let me pose some questions to each of us. Have I lost my respect for God's word and instead find myself more and more explaining away the miraculous and the eternal as things that we cannot take too seriously? or reduce them to simply being metaphors or nice stories that were given to make a nice point. Well, if you find that's a tendency of yourself or this church, that's Sadduceical thinking. Have I slowly lowered my gaze, which was once fixed on heaven, and instead become fixated on the things of this earth? Even doing, not bad things, even doing good things on this earth for the good of humanity, has that become the focus of my ministry, instead of the things that are eternal if so you've likely been influenced by the Sadducees if you are more interested in being liked and accepted by the so-called leading minds of our day that's Sadduceical that was their deal have you come to enjoy your position and status so much that you're willing to compromise biblical beliefs just so that you don't lose social connections Again, Sadduceeical. And that is the leaven, if you will, of the Sadducees. Very subtly creeping in, so oftentimes unnoticed, or if it is noticed, so oftentimes minimized. And Jesus says, beware, because of the effect that it really could have. Now, on the other hand, have we gone in the other direction, the direction of the legalist, the direction of the hypocrite? Have we become more interested in whether others will think we are spiritual giants than actually being a spiritual giant? Have we become more interested in appearing to be right with the Lord rather than actually being right with the Lord? Have we convinced ourselves that the Christian faith is notch- nothing more than a bunch of rules that we follow and mandate that others follow as well, rather than a living, breathing relationship with the Lord? If that's the case, then we've succumbed to pharisaical thinking. Pharisaical thinking leads to a critical unloving spirit toward others it provides no real victory over sin and ultimately it leaves a person with a complete absence of joy and i think this is most significant it misrepresents who god is someone might say hey you should come join our loveless joyless critical spirited church that has no real lasting victory over sin would you want to join a church like that it misrepresents who god is pharisaical thinking and so jesus says beware now i think this is a very crucial conversation that jesus is having with these disciples because in just a short period of time three one year at the most or so maybe a little longer than that jesus is going to be off the scene the holy spirit certainly will be given uh, to his his children but he'll be off the scene and the course of the church will be charted by the leadership of the men that are sitting in this boat here And Jesus knows that both Pharisaical thinking and Sadduceical thinking were going to look to work their way into the church as time went by. And so he tells them to beware. If you go and you start reading through the New Testament epistles, the letters that were written by Paul and Peter and John and James and some others, those letters that were written there, more often than not, they're addressing an issue that has popped up in the church. And it's interesting to note in the context of what we're talking about, There are two books that are written which really deal with the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And so this idea of Pharisaical thinking is addressed in the book of Galatians. By that time, there was a group called the Judaizers, which were basically the Pharisees 2.0. And so the book addresses them. If you look at the book of Colossians, Colossians, the book of Colossians deals with the influx of Greek philosophy that was trying to make its way into the church. That's the idea of the Sadducees, and it has to be addressed, so Paul addresses them there, Pharisees, Sadducees. And this weekend, what I want to do, this week ahead, I should say, I want to give you a homework assignment. It's been a while since I've given you a homework assignment. Now, could I just have, before I even give it to you, could you just raise your hand if you have no intention of doing the homework assignment? (laughs) Because I know, John, you call brother, because I know some of you, you think, I ain't doing that, you know, he's not going to check it anyway, or whatever, just like back when you were in school. Or whatever. So we are going to check it. I'll come to your house. But anyway, here's the homework assignment that I like to give you. And I think it would be beneficial for all of us to do it. It's not that hard here. It starts with this. Number one is just to pray. Take some time, get away from the noise, get away from others, get before the Lord, and just pray and say, Lord, would you, this week, would you now, if you could? But if it takes a little longer, I understand. But during this week, Lord, would you just search out my heart and show me where there are tendencies either toward Pharisaical thinking and living? or Sadduceyical thinking and living. Does that make sense, the first step? Just take some time to pray and ask the Lord to reveal. And he's faithful, and he will. And as the Lord begins to reveal some of those tendencies in your life, then I'd encourage you, if he's revealing, you have pharisaical thinking, then take the rest of the week and read through the book of Galatians. There's only six chapters in the book of Galatians. You could probably read it every day, 25 minutes a day or something. But take a long, as long as you need and begin reading through the book of Galatians. And as you do, ask the Lord to continue to minister how the, the message that is there in the book of Galatians speaks to where you are presently in your relationship with the Lord. If you're praying and the Lord says, you know what, your issue, it's Sadduceical and you're thinking, then read the book of Colossians. You have it a little easier. There's only four chapters in the book of Colossians. So you read through that. Some of us, many of us, we got problems with Pharisaical thinking and Sadduceical thinking, and so we're going to be doing a lot of reading this week of both of those books. But take the time, read, ask the Lord. And you know what I think the Lord will do? He will give you a personal tutoring session with the Holy Spirit to just minister to you, to teach you, to guide you, to bring you to where it is that he would have you to be. And I believe that the Lord will bless each of us as we do that. And so, my friends, beware of the leaven because leaven leavens. And we need to be careful. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for these instructions we know how important they are significant they are and we're thankful for the certainly for the reminder but lord you use a word like beware and you know we think of a a haunted house or a big scary dog or something like that and it's a term which catches our attention as opposed to just be careful or you should keep an eye out and so lord you You've said to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and Lord, we want to do exactly that. And so, Father, as we go from here this week ahead of us, Lord, I'm just asking for your blessing on our times alone with you, as each of us just takes that time to meet with you, Lord, that by your grace, that you would sort of break through the noise of life and you'd speak and minister to us. And Lord, you'd open up our hearts to those areas that are sort of uh, outside of what you would have for us and that you'd use your word and by your spirit, you'd teach us and kind of set us aright again. And so Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you just for how faithful you are to use it every time we come to it. And we pray you would do it one more time. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for listening to the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone.